have him come because so often I've wanted to teach, teach Genesis. And the last time I taught Genesis 1, I took an extra six or eight weeks in the middle to deal with creation and evolution. So we will have this done from somebody who really knows the issues related to that. And if I do get around to teaching Genesis, I won't have to spend a lot of time on that particular subject. Where did I put my glasses? Okay, any other announcements? It seems to me there was something else that, that I wanted to mention. Oh, yes, there was something. For the conference, when I talked to Jay, Jay said the way they handle the finances, which I think is fine, is they put out a box marked conference offering. We will do the same. So that, and I'm just letting you know that because that's their SOP, so they know, their people know that to expect that, and I want you to not be blindsided on that, but I think that that should help cover and defray conference expenses, bringing Charlie up here and uh, giving him a good honorarium and all of those things. Okay, let's begin with a word of prayer. Bow our heads few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study God's Word, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together this evening to study your Word, to examine it, and this is such a crucial topic, such an important topic, not only in relation to our rapport with you, but also in terms of our relationships with other human beings, whether they're parents, children, wives, husbands, whatever it may be, Father, we know that this is crucial to our relationships. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, challenge us. May the Holy Spirit make these things very clear to us that we may see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2, verse 8. If you're wondering what happened to James 1, 13 down through 2, 7, well, we will get there. James 2, 8. We're moving around somewhat tonight. So we came to our passage in James 1, 12. We were told that we were promised through crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. This is a critical doctrine throughout Scripture. Very few people take the time to explore what it means to love God. That this is a a crucial doctrine, crucial uh, to every aspect, every relationship that we have. If you do not understand the whole doctrine of the believer's personal love for God the Father, you do not assimilate that into your souls and apply that, then you will never be successful in any of your human relationships because this is a foundational doctrine, a foundational doctrine. And it is the, ba- it is the basis for all motivation in the adult spiritual life. Now, there are a number of scriptures that enforce this mandate for us. And I did a little word study on this today and ran this on the computer, and I was amazed at how many passages related this. This is the mandate for personal love for God and how crucial it is. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the Hebrew word there, we went over this last week, the Hebrew for might is ma'od, which has to do with exceedingly, abundantly. And, and, and when it's used like this as a noun, it means with all your strength, power, vitality. In other words, you ought to be consumed with loving the Lord your God. This is the mandate for us. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 11.1 You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Notice how loving the Lord is often related to obedience to divine mandates in other areas of the spiritual life. Deuteronomy 11.13 And it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Deuteronomy 11.22 For if you are careful 
to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and hold fast to him. Deuteronomy 13.3 You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. This is referring to the uh, strictures against a false prophet. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, love of the Lord is an issue in discerning truth. Deuteronomy 19.9 If you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways always, then you shall add more cities for yourself. Deuteronomy 36, 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, that is, spiritual rebirth, which we're studying in John on Sunday morning. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you might live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Joshua 22.5 Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and walk in all His ways and keep His commandments and hold fast to Him and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua 23.11 So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Psalm 31.23 Oh, love the Lord. And there it's an imperative mood. Love the Lord, all you His godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the arrogant. Psalm 97.10 Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 116 I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Matthew 22:37 And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 1 Corinthians 16:22 If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. Over and over again, and that's not counting all the many passages that instead of naming the name of the Lord, use a personal pronoun talking about how we are to love him with all of our strength and all of our might. Well, what does it mean to love the Lord, to have personal love for God? Well, first of all, we have to realize that we cannot love who we do not know. Knowledge is the foundation to love. It is silly, and it is typical of people today to think that they love somebody that they do not know. And there's so much uh, talk about love today that is superficial and sentimental And then if you take that concept of love over into the Scriptures, then you're going to totally misunderstand the character of God, and you're going to misunderstand salvation. And to think that God is motivated by some sort of superficial, sentimental, emotional tripe borders on heresy. The love of God and the love that God has for us is far beyond this superficial sentimentalism that passes for love today. The scriptures clearly represent that love is based on knowledge. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, "For I, uh, excuse me, I missed it. Philippians 1, 9 says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, that's epinosis, and all discernment. So your growth in love is based on your development in epinosis, knowledge of Scripture, and discernment, that is, its application. So, you cannot love who you do not know, so we must make the knowledge of God a high priority. That's the second point. Knowledge of God must be the highest priority in our life. Now, what do I mean by that? That means that you realize that your knowledge of the Word, your knowledge of doctrine, your understanding of everything in Scripture, even things that you don't think are immediately applicable. And there's so much in Scripture that prepares you for learning other doctrines, learning advanced doctrines, and being able to apply them to situations that you're not going to get to for another ten years. Yet you're laying the foundation right now with some doctrines that you think just, I don't really need that, I don't understand it, I don't see how that relates. Yet it's going to be one brick in building that wall 
of protection around your soul. And so often people think, well, unless it's immediately applicable, unless I can see how I use it today or tomorrow or this week, then, then I'm not really going to pay attention. And that's so short-sighted and narrow-minded and will never get you to maturity in the spiritual life. Love is based on knowledge, and knowledge of God must be the highest priority in the believer's life. That means you look at your schedule. You look at your life. You look at where you devote your time and your energy. And you decide that if knowledge of doctrine is the highest priority, then I'm going to arrange my schedule in such a way that I'm going to be at church on Sunday morning and I'm going to be at Bible class during the week. And no matter what comes up, I'm going to try to arrange it so that I'm always there. Now, there's always things that come up here or there in a person's life. But you have to make sure that when you evaluate your life, that your highest priority is learning doctrine. So loving the Lord means, first of all, you can't love who you don't know. So secondly, knowledge of doctrine must be your highest priority. Third, personal love of God is directly related to the obedience of divine mandates. It is directly related to obedience of divine mandates. And that means that you have to know what God expects and what those mandates in Scripture are. This is found in Second John, verse 6 where John writes, And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And that's talking about personal love for God the Father. This is love that we walk, that, we, that is, we live our spiritual life according to His commandments. When we violate those mandates, then we're under the influence of the sin nature, we're out of fellowship and in a status of carnality, ready for divine discipline. As part of obeying His mandates, we are also to... Hate evil, which means to reject, shun, or avoid all sin in our lives. Hating evil is not, doesn't mean that you have to somehow work up an emotion of hatred towards sin. Hating evil is an idiom for rejecting, shunning, and avoiding as sin in your life. Now, you always have a sin nature. That's always with you. I'm not teaching a doctrine of perfectionism here. But that is to be the goal in the spiritual life, is to bring Scripture to bear so that we spend less and less time under the influence of the sin nature and more and more time filled with the Holy Spirit. This is found in Psalm 1710, which says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, which reads, Do not love the world nor the things in the world, and the part of the world system, part of the cosmic system, includes, of course, much that is in violation of God's world. The cosmic system is Satan's system of antagonism to God. It is based on arrogance, arrogance in, in the devil, and it is based on arrogance of man and hostility to the Word of God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that is an objective genitive there, the love for the Father, is not in him. When we are loving the world, we're operating in the cosmic system, and that means we're out of fellowship, we're in carnality, and the love for the Father is not in us. So we are to avoid, shun, or reject sin and the cosmic system and all satanic evil. Psalm 17:10 and 1 John 2:15. Now last week when we began this study, we said there were two categories of love. And I want to remind you of what those are. There's personal love, which is a category of love that is selective, conditional, and dependent upon the appeal or merit in the person loved. And we saw that when the person loved is the Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father who possess absolute righteousness and perfect justice, that they have more merit and appeal than anyone else in the universe. They have absolute perfect appeal and merit, and therefore there is no instability in personal love there. Personal love is always virtue-dependent, and when that virtue resides in the object is perfect virtue, then personal love, the only true object of personal love is God the Father. Impersonal love is, in contrast, we have... In, in personal love, in the statement, I love you, the emphasis in personal love is on the object. Specifically, some personal relationship, personal knowledge, personal attraction or compatibility in the object of love. But in impersonal love, the emphasis is on the subject, 
the person who is doing the loving. Therefore, it does not require personal compatibility or even personal knowledge or acquaintance with the object. You can show impersonal love towards somebody who's driving in another car. You have no idea who they are. You may not even be able to tell what sex they are. But you can exercise love towards them regardless of any personal knowledge in the object. So impersonal love places all of its value in the person doing the loving. It is therefore defined as the consistent function of individual integrity, the integrity of the one loving. Impersonal love, get this, this is important. Impersonal love is only as strong as the integrity or virtue of the person doing the loving. Impersonal love is only as strong as the virtue and integrity of the person doing the loving. If you've got a person over here who's just a baby believer but spends maximum amount of time in carnality, and they don't know much doctrine, and they don't haven't developed any practical maturity yet in the spiritual life, then they're they're going to be, uh, especially when they're out of fellowship, they're going to be minus virtue and minus integrity. And let's say they're a believer that's out of fellowship most of the time and they're in carnality and they're rarely positive except when they're in trouble. Then it's only to bargain with God. And they, they're not going to have a, an impersonal love worth anything. Because they, if personal love is based on the integrity of the one loving, if they lack integrity, their impersonal love is going to be worthless. And this is why it's so important when young people start dating and getting involved emotionally with one another and getting involved romantically and moving towards marriage, that they need to understand the dynamics of the character of the person they're with. Because ultimately, the degree of character that's developed here in terms of their virtue and their integrity determines the quality of their impersonal love. And if their impersonal love is based on a character that has no integrity, then when the going gets rough, that person is going to be gone. Because everything in life, all true love of any value, in fact, all personal love of any value, and that's the glue that holds together any, any relationship, any marriage, any, any family relationships, personal love to have any value must be predicated on. It must be built on and based on impersonal love. Because personal love puts its emphasis in the object and everybody knows that, we're, that every human being is flawed, we have failures, we're, we're sinners, and we are going to fail, disappoint, and hurt people who love us many times in the course of our lives. And if their personal love for us is not grounded in an impersonal love, so that when we're, we no longer are attractive or valuable to them, then they shift from personal love to impersonal love, and they love us in spite of what we've done, and that relationship continues. But when personal love lacks a foundation of impersonal love and lacks a foundation of integrity or virtue in the one loving, then that relationship is going to fall apart and is going to fragment in all kinds of different directions. So personal love is based on the virtue or apparent virtue, compatibility, knowledge in the subject, I mean in the object. Impersonal love is based on the integrity of the one loving. Now, personal love for God the Father is the only love that we can have, the only personal love that we can have that is inherently virtuous because the object, God the Father, is virtuous. And we have seen that personal love for God the Father is mandated of every believer. Passages like Deuteronomy 6, 5, Matthew 22, 37 to 38, and 1 John 4 are passages that undergird this important doctrine. And last time we concluded by looking at 1 John 4, 19. So let's turn there and pick up where we left off the last time. 1 John 4.19 We love Him. Now last time I said 
that even though you may be using a New American Standard Bible or an NIV or some other modern translation that leaves out the word him, that word should be supplied. So you need to write that in to make sure it's there. This is a textual problem. The majority text, the Textus Receptus, which is the uh, Greek text that underlies the uh, New Testament uh, of, the, of the King James Version. The majority text is different. It's similar in many, many ways, but it's different from the TR. The majority text uh, all include the word auton, the direct object, the accusative case of the third person personal pronoun in the Greek, him, referring to God. And whenever you have, uh, whenever you have discrepancies in the manuscripts, you have to look at both the, what they call the external evidence, which is uh, the classification of the various Greek manuscripts, and you have to look at the internal evidence, which is what is the context, what is the author's style, what's his vocabulary like, and a number of other factors like that. And we see from verse 20, if someone says, I love God, and then verse 21, in this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also, we see that there is a shift that takes place. It must take place in verse 19 because 20 and 21 are illustrations of the command in verse 19 or the statement in verse 19. So it must be, it is consistent with the context for the direct object of the verb in verse 19 to be him. And there is more than adequate textual evidence to document that. So we love him because he first loved us. And that tells us a couple of very, very important things. First of all, our personal love for God is based on his prior love for us. And his prior love for us began in eternity past. Billions and billions of millennia ago, God the Father in his omniscience knew you would exist and he had love for you. He knew that you were an unbeliever, so it is an impersonal love and we will look at why the, the reasons for that in a minute. In eternity past, he had impersonal love for you because you're a sinner. And God, being perfectly righteous, is, cannot love someone that is not compatible with him. So his love for all mankind was based on his impersonal love. And that motivated him to provide the solution, the redemption solution, of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And so it was his love that motivated his integrity to provide that solution that was expressed in grace. And because of that, we love him. So the cause of our love is ultimately God's plan of salvation that began in eternity past with his love for us as expressed in the Council of Divine Decrees and the plan of salvation. Now that's the simple statement. We love him because he first loved us. Now to get to verse 19, the Apostle Paul starts his argument. Really what you have in verses 19 through 21 is the conclusion of a lengthy, or the beginning really, the beginning of a conclusion. The conclusion goes down in the first three verses of chapter 5 of a lengthy line of argumentation or reasoning which begins back in 4.7. Begins back in 4.7. So turn with me there. His conclusion, if we chart this out in terms of an argument, the Apostle John wants to reach a conclusion. And that conclusion is to challenge and encourage believers with the importance of their personal love for God the Father. Now, to get there, he starts with impersonal love for all mankind. Right back in verse 7, for all mankind. He uses that to, that this is the mandate he starts with in 4.7. And he uses that to argue back to personal love for God because this personal love for God the Father is the foundation. You can't carry out the mandates in 4-7 and following 
if you don't understand personal love for God the Father, which is at the end of the chapter. That's the structure of his argument. Now, we don't have time, and it is not my intent, to go through and pick this apart verse by verse and exegete every single phrase. What I want to do is just give you an overview of this chapter, and we'll read through it, and I'll make some comments as we go through it. Just four points, just four points by way of introduction. First of all, love for God precedes love for man. Love for God precedes love for man. You need to learn to love God before you get concerned about your love for other people. One of the biggest problems in Christianity today is the emphasis on human relationships over the divine relationship. People think that if they just have right relationships with people, that somehow Christian fellowship will help them solve their problems. But Christian fellowship, so-called Christian fellowship, number one, is poorly understood and is equated with just Christian social interaction. If I go out fishing with a bunch of guys that happen to be believers, that's considered to be fellowship. But that's not the biblical concept of fellowship, of Christian fellowship. For fellowship to be Christian, it has to be centered around doctrinal discussions and focus on that, that interaction is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is why in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 247, says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The breaking of bread and prayer. Now, the average person, the average place that's taught, looks at that in the English and says, well, there are four things here that they devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But that's incorrect. There are only two things listed there, and one of them has two things that listed that explain it. The only two things they devoted themselves to were the apostles' teaching and fellowship. But what is fellowship? See, Luke knew that people were going to misunderstand what fellowship was. What is fellowship? Fellowship is communion and prayer. It's God-centered. He's not talking about human fellowship in that passage. He's not talking about fellowship with other believers in that passage. He's talking about fellowship with God. That's the issue. That's what they devoted themselves to. Number one, the apostles' teaching, because without doctrine, without knowledge, you can't have rapport, fellowship with God. And that is exemplified by two things, the breaking of bread, which is communion, and prayer, which brings us, leads us to the second point, which is that only Bible doctrine can build and develop your personal love for God. Only Bible doctrine can build and develop your personal love for God. It is not based on experience. How many people run around and think, oh, God did this for me and God did that for me, and that's wonderful that they're thinking in that sort of a theocentric way, but then they get all caught up in the emotion of it and think that they're fully in love with God, and that's not the scriptural orientation. Only an understanding of doctrine in your soul can develop and build your personal love for God. Third, doctrine builds your personal integrity. Doctrine builds your personal integrity. The application of doctrine develops the integrity in your soul, which is the basis for all of your expression of love, your advance in the Christian way of life, leading to the adult stress busters or problem-solving devices, including personal love for God. And then fourth, integrity. This integrity, understanding the integrity of God and integrity in you, this is the basis for developing impersonal love for all mankind. Okay, let's take the passage apart and read through it verse by verse. Beloved, let us love one another. And this is a verb in the subjunctive mood which is a subjunctive of exhortation. It is in the first person. It is the first person subjunctive, the first person plural here, let us love. There's no first person 
plural imperative, so the subjunctive is used where the author includes himself as part of the command. Let us love one another. Why? Why are we to love one another? Why are we commanded to have love for one another? Because love is from God. This is a causal use of the Greek word hati, which indicates the reason or ground for a prior statement, because love is from God. Now, what kind of love is this? Is this a personal love? Well, it can't be, because we can't love every believer with a personal love, because, number one, we can't know every believer. Number two, we can only know a very few believers. We may be acquainted with at some superficial level with many believers in a local body, and we can treat them a certain way, but that must flow from something other than our knowledge and acquaintance with that individual. So this must be referring to an impersonal love. Now, by impersonal, I don't mean that it lacks certain qualities. Now, some people get the idea that when you use a word like impersonal, that it doesn't, that that somehow negates... um, Kindness and gentleness is just sort of a standoffish kind of word. That's why sometimes I use the word unconditional to describe the same thing. The reason we use the word impersonal is to distinguish it from personal. Personal means that you have a personal knowledge and a personal relationship with the object of your love. Impersonal doesn't mean it's cold. Impersonal doesn't mean that it's that it, it lacks any warmth or interest or generosity or kindness. It has all of that. But it, it's not based on a personal knowledge or acquaintance with the object. So there's no conditions that have to be met by the person you're loving in order for you to be kind, generous, and caring, and compassionate with them. Let us love one another, for love has its source or origin in God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, very important observation in this particular passage. We're getting a bad tear in that roll. Okay, very important. Everyone who loves. This means that if you are exercising impersonal love, then you are a person who loves. Everyone who loves, everyone who practices impersonal love is born of God. They are regenerate. Why? It's impossible for the unbeliever to have impersonal love for all mankind. This is specifically the mark of the believer. Let's follow a time-honored tradition, a hermeneutical principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Jesus said in John 13:34 in the upper room, when he was addressing his disciples just before the crucifixion, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so the model for their love for one another is his love for them. Now, his love for them was personal, but it was primarily impersonal. Why must it have been impersonal? Let's go back to our formula statement that we use over and over again. God is righteous and He is absolute justice. Remember what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes, motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Now, what the righteousness of God rejects, which is minus R, a lack of righteousness. What the righteousness of God rejects The justice of God condemns. Jesus, in hypostatic union, is undiminished deity, which is perfect righteousness and justice, and He is true humanity, which is also perfect righteousness. Can Jesus Christ, in hypostatic union, can He have personal love towards sinners? No. Incompatibility. Therefore, he can't have personal love because there is no compatibility between the 
object of his love and his own perfect righteousness. So because of that, he can't love them because of who they are. He can only love them because of who he is. That's impersonal love. So, it is a personal love because these are regenerate men and they and he does have a personal knowledge and acquaintance with them, but it is fundamentally and foundationally an impersonal love. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? What's the model? What's the standard? This is illustrated by the Greek word here, kathos. Translated just as. In other words, I'm giving you a model. For the last three years, I have demonstrated to you what impersonal love is all about. Peter, I have put up with you and all of your failures and all those stupid things you say and all of your arrogance for three years. Um, Andrew, in your timidity, I have put up with that, but I have loved you. Impersonal love. He has given them uh, an example for love. And he says, you love one another just as I have loved you you also love one another. By this, by what? By this impersonal love for all mankind. By this impersonal love that is so qualitatively different from all other concepts of love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. This is what some have called the silent witness of the believer the non-verbal witness of the believer, is the unique way in which he demonstrates love to those who are unworthy of love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The love from one believer to another. So 1 John 4, 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is number one, regenerate, and number two, they know God. Now, isn't that interesting? Before you can show love for one another, real impersonal love, you have to first know God. You can't just generate this from yourself. It's based on reaching a certain level of spiritual maturity and knowing God. That's why one of the prerequisites for developing personal love for God is grace orientation. Our fourth problem-solving device, our fourth stress buster. We have to have grace orientation because only in grace orientation do we begin to appreciate God's love for us, that He has done everything that, that is necessary for us. He's provided everything for us, blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. He has given every, us everything we need for life and the spiritual life for our Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. And that's grace orientation. And then the uh, fifth stress buster is doctrinal orientation. We must learn the Word of God and begin to orient our thinking to doctrine. The only way you can know God is to study His Word and what He has said. And if you do not take the time to study God's Word and to have your, the mentality of your soul renovated, then there will be no doctrinal orientation and there will be no personal love for God and no personal love for God, no love for one another. It is an aspect of a maturing believer. Everyone who loves has two characteristics. Everyone who demonstrates impersonal love for all mankind is, number one, a regenerate believer, and number two, has advanced to a certain level of spiritual maturity based on their knowledge of God. Let's go to verse 8. The one who does not love, okay, the believer who does not practice impersonal love. That's an evaluation point between you and God the Holy Spirit. The one who does not love, who does not exercise impersonal love, does not know God. Notice he doesn't say they're not regenerate. just says they don't know God. They haven't advanced to this level of spiritual maturity yet. They are a spiritual infant. They have very little doctrine resident in the soul. They are either a carnal believer who's operating on the sin nature a maximum amount of time, or they are ignorant of Bible doctrine. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
God being love, if you know Him, have a relationship with Him based on doctrine, then you will begin to apply the eighth stress buster of impersonal love for all mankind. Verse 9, By this, the love of God was revealed in us. Now, this is an important word to look at here. Verse 9, it is from the Greek word, phanerao. It is the aorist, passive, indicative of phanerao, meaning to reveal, to make clear, to manifest. So it's, the text reads, by this, the love of God was revealed in us. Now, we have an important grammatical issue to define here. We have the phrase, definite article, hey agape, to theu. This is a genitival phrase here, the definite article, T-O-U, and then the proper name, of, or the name of God, or the reference to God, theu, the love of God. A-G-A-P-E. Hey, agape to theu. What kind of genitive is this? Is this love from the source of God, a genitive of source, or is this an objective genitive, which this would be a subjective genitive, or is it a love toward God? Loving God Himself, which would make it an objective genitive. These are the kinds of difficult decisions pastors have to make when they're studying the Greek text and beating their head against the wall. By this, is it love for God or love from God? Is it talking about the love that God has, divine love, or is it talking about our love for God? Well, it's clear from the passage that what we're talking about is the expression of divine love for mankind. It was revealed to us. That means it's coming from God. So it's the second object here, our first object here. It's love from the source of God. It is a subjective genitive or a genitive of source. By this, God's impersonal love toward us was made clear, revealed, manifested to us. What? That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. What does that remind you of? What verse? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten or his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the same author. John who wrote John, the gospel of John wrote this epistle. By this the love of God was demonstrated to us. So we understand divine impersonal love by looking at the cross. This is our model. This is our example. This is the paradigm of virtue love. Paradigm means example. When you study languages, you often memorize certain forms, like in Greek, the present active indicative of luo that we had to memorize to get it was called the paradigm. Luo, luos, luo, luamen, luete, luusen. And it just drilled into you. You learn these, all these paradigms. They're examples. They're standards. It is the paradigm. It is our example for impersonal love. By this, the love of God was manifested or revealed in us that God has sent His unique Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God because we couldn't. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. There can be no personal love for God from somebody who has no uh, regenerate nature, is not filled with the Holy Spirit, and has no knowledge of doctrine. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A repetition and expansion of the idea in verse 9. The impersonal love of God is exemplified through His sending His Son. It is, He came, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came not to lord it over, but to be a servant of all 
two words, servant and sacrifice, are words that are exemplified. Why? He came to do that which was necessary, taking on the likeness of a servant, Philippians chapter 2. He came to serve, to accomplish a task. He was focused. He came for a purpose. He came as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is our substitute. He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And that means that God the Father, in His perfect righteousness and absolute justice, looked on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. God the Father poured out the sins of the world on Him, and He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that God the Father was satisfied with His payment on the cross. And that word for satisfaction is the word propitiation. We are, he, God the Father is satisfied by the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So this is our model and paradigm for understanding impersonal love. Now I'm building a case slowly but surely. Hang in there. This is going to be a blockbuster when it hits. Okay? I'm not going to give it away ahead of time. This is the standard. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Very simple statement. If God so loved us, and He did, first class condition, then we ought to love others in the same way. So whatever qualities or characteristics describe God's love for us, this is what should describe our love for one another. Verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, we come to verse 12. We have to correct that translation again. For we run across the verb, the perfect, uh, the perfect active, or perfect passive participle of teleio. T-E-L-E-I-O-O. This is that word that is almost consistently translated perfect and never means perfect in the sense of lacking um, or, or having imp- lacking imperfections or lacking sin or sinlessness or anything like that. But in almost every case, and I'm convinced every case in the New Testament, it has the idea of completion, bringing something to completion, bringing something to its intended goal or purpose, which has the idea of maturity. So let's read it that way. Verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. This is clear. We know this from Scripture. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten He has revealed Him. No one has beheld God at any time. It's very difficult to love someone you can't see. That's, that's what the apostle will get to at the end of the chapter, is that it's, it's, uh, if we can't, if we want to love, be able to love people who we see, touch, and have a relationship with, then first we have to love someone who we cannot see or touch or have any experience with. The only way we can learn to love God is through the written Word of God and understanding it. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, that is an advanced problem-solving device, God abides in us. This is the present tense of the Greek word meno, a word that is very important in Johannine theology. John is always referred to by that German pronunciation, Johann, and referred to in scholarly terms as Johannine theology. So this is the theology of the Apostle John. By this we know that we abide in Him. This is a technical word for fellowship with God. How do we have fellowship with God? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we commit sins, then we are immediately out of fellowship. And the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Why? We're out of fellowship. So, an advanced problem-solving device is utilized when we're in fellowship with the Lord, God abiding in us, and His love is matured in us. So, personal love for God is necessary to advance to impersonal love, and as we are growing through maximum amount of time in fellowship, then His impersonal love 
is matured or completed, brought to completion in us. By this, in other words, by the practice of impersonal love, we know that we have fellowship in Him. That's, that's abide. It's that word for fellowship. That we have fellowship with Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Remember, this love is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, uh, 20-22. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. There's fellowship there. And He in God. This is not talking about uh, confessing to be saved, a misuse of Romans chapter, uh, chapter 10, which is really not talking about phase one justification salvation. It's talking about advancing in the spiritual life. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed. Notice that belief is a result of knowledge. It is not irrational, it's rational. Love is never divorced from knowledge. And we have come to know certain doctrine and have believed. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Because the more you think about what happens at salvation, the more it's taught, the more you're exposed to it, the more it motivates you, the more you understand the breadth and the depth of all that happened at the cross, the more it advances you in your love for God, your appreciation for all He's done, and the more that spurs you on in your impersonal love for all mankind. God is love, and the one who has fellowship in love, that is, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in Him. He's building this argument. He continues to advance it with each verse that fellowship, the maximum amount of time in fellowship under the filling of the Holy Spirit, Leads you plus, plus the application of doctrine, leads you to maturity. Maximum amount of fellowship with God means God produces His love in you, impersonal love. Verse 17, By this, love is matured with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect, that is, mature love, cast out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not matured in love. Then our verse, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. And then the conclusion ties it all up. If someone says, I love God, if someone makes the statement, I have personal love for God the Father, I've reached this stage in the spiritual life where I can use this problem-solving device through personal love for God the Father, and hates his brother. Okay, now it brings it down to reality. If you say you have personal love for God, and yet you hate another believer, that means that you are minus impersonal love for mankind. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. John doesn't hold back. He's not going to have that soft little pastoral personality that, well, you're just not quite got the point yet. He just comes right out and says that you're a liar. You, this is why when you get to the seventh and eighth problem-solving devices, personal love for God and impersonal love for mankind, these work together in tandem. They are distinguished for academic purposes, but they are always linked together. If you say that you do the one and don't do the other, then you're a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, that is, does not exercise in personal love for all mankind, and I had you begin, I didn't get there, James 2.8 calls this the royal law. It quotes the passage back in Deuteronomy uh, 6 five and six, that we are to love others as we love ourselves. And this is an application of what is called the royal love, which we will expand on in the coming uh, weeks. The royal law is that we are to love others as we love ourselves. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Notice how there's an interconnection. Earlier, back in verses 4 and 5, we saw that personal love for God was a prerequisite for impersonal love for mankind. And now what we see is if you 
don't have impersonal love for mankind, whom you can see, whom you can touch, who you have a relationship with, then how can you have personal love for God who you can't see? So we see how these two concepts are interrelated. And this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So how do we implement impersonal love for all mankind? I want to give you a preview of coming attractions. Characteristics of divine impersonal love. We're going to understand this. Remember the model for us to express impersonal love for all mankind is that we have to have, we have to understand divine impersonal love for all mankind. So what are the characteristics of divine impersonal love? First of all, it's initiating. Initiating. From eternity past, God took the initiative in grace to solve the greatest problem any human being will ever face. didn't start with man's initiative. It started with God's initiative in grace preceding all time. God's love takes, takes charge of the situation to provide the solution necessary to restore the relationship broken by Adam's original sin. So the first characteristic of divine impersonal love is that it is initiating. It takes the initiative. Secondly, it is aggressive. It is aggressive. It's not passive. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. Because of omniscience, God knows all the knowable, and He knows the entire problem. And with understanding, He takes every step necessary to resolve the problem. His love is aggressive. Third, it's humble. Humility. Humility seeks not his, its own personal glory. So God does not seek His own personal glory, but God the Son does not seek His own personal glory, but takes on the attitude of a servant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, takes on the attitude of a servant to do whatever is necessary to solve the problem, including incarnation, sacrifice, and the undeserved imputation of human sin to recover fallen humanity and to redeem them from the slave market of sin. In humility, Jesus Christ came to serve as a servant of all, seeking not His own personal glory, but willing to do whatever was necessary, including incarnation, sacrifice, and the undeserved imputation of human sin to recover fallen humanity. Fourth, divine impersonal love is intense. It is intense. It is a strong and overwhelming desire to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. What did the disciples remember when Jesus cleared out the temple? Zeal for thy house has consumed me. It's zealous. It's intense. It's a strong and overwhelming desire to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. Fifth, it's steadfastly loyal. Steadfastly loyal. God is loyal to the task and strongly desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, He does not reject or condemn man at the moment he commits personal sin. God is always loyal and faithful to His promises and desires to bring all men to salvation. Sixth, consecration. Consecration. Consecration means to be set apart to a task. It's related to sanctification. Jesus Christ solemnly set himself apart for the high purpose of being the exclusive means of salvation for the church. As such, his, his love is loyal and set apart to every believer to bring them to maturity after salvation. Dedication. Dedication is the seventh. Jesus Christ committed Himself to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. Dedication. It means Jesus Christ committed Himself to the task of service, 
sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. And then eighth, it is devoted. Devoted. To give or apply one's time, attention, and self entirely to a particular activity, cause, or person. In this case, the activity is the incarnation and crucifixion. The cause is the cause of the salvation of the world. And the person is every individual in the world. Eight characteristics of divine impersonal love. Initiating, aggressive, humble, intense, steadfastly loyal, consecration, dedication, and devotion. Now, next week, when we come back, we will look at the characteristics of responsive love, the response that we have towards God, and how that motivates us. And then we're going to see how this applies in our lives. This is what's going to be important. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us, for your incredible and and unfathomable love for us that has done so much, provided so much, and sets us such a, a almost unreachable example. And yet we know that we can reach that example through the power of God the Holy Spirit who fills and empowers us. Father, may we be motivated by all that we learn about your work on the cross to make this the exemplification in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.